When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Podcast Network. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, October 27, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington. We have a great show today. Two guests, Peter Bookvar, CIO of Bleakley Advisory Group and The Book Report, and Darius Dale, founder and CEO of 42 Macro. Welcome to you gentlemen, both. Lots happening today. Uh, looks like a pretty nasty close here. Uh, numbers still bouncing around a little bit, uh, but it looks like Dow Jones industrial average off zero spot, 7.4%. Uh, settling down looks like 35,491. S&P off looks like over half a percent, settling down here at the end of the day at 4,000. 551. Big loser of the day, Russell 2K off over 1.5% to 2,260. Lots to talk about. Durable goods, trade and international goods, some pretty ugly prints coming out. Uh, Let's pull both of you guys in. Great to have both of you with us today. We were talking a little bit at the top of the show. Let's have you give a 50,000-foot overview of what you each think is happening in markets right now. Peter, it's been a while since you and I have been together on the show. Give us your view of what's happening right now. So I'm coming to the markets with the angle that inflation is persistent and sustainable, more so than uh, the transitory argument claims. And therefore, a lot is drawing from that. We have companies that are dealing with all these inflation pressures. With some, it's being reflected in their profit margins. Others, of course, are having a better uh, time in offsetting that through cost cuts and the ability to pass on to consumers. But this whole environment is now putting a new spotlight on central banks. So today, what I thought was very noteworthy to that point is the Bank of Canada cold turkey said we are ending QE. They are no longer expanding the size of their balance sheet. They're just going to reinvest to maintain it at the current level. That was not expected. There was the thought that they would further taper and ease the market off, but that didn't happen. So we saw a 20 basis point increase in the two-year Canadian yield. We saw a 25 basis point flattening between their twos and tens. And I think the U.S. Treasury market got its cue from that. So to bottom line this, inflation, profit margin uh, challenges, and now central banks that are responding to this in a global fashion, and we're going to get probably tonight uh, a a rate hike from the the Brazilian central bank, the CELIC rate possibly can go up 75 plus basis points. So that also means how do global markets respond to potentially global tightening when you look out over the next at least six months, if they can even get away with it without causing any accidents. 
Yeah, we should probably add to that. We saw a drop in the 10-year yield uh, here at the open uh, today in New York. Uh, much more to talk about. Darius, it feels like we just did this. What was it earlier this week, last week? It all blends together. Wonderful to have you back. Give us your 50,000-foot overview of what's happening in markets Yeah, that's, and that's in the macroeconomy. Yeah, Ash, I appreciate it. It's great to see you guys. It's great to be on. Um, so I'll start with, uh, I'll sort of organize this for the viewers and the listeners. Uh, I'll start with growth. Uh, we do believe that growth is like growth are likely growth data are likely to bounce post Delta, post the peak economic impact of Delta, both for the U.S. and global economies. That, in my opinion, is a Q4 event. Um, is unlikely to be sustained. So we'll have a transitory bounce in growth. Uh, with respect to inflation, uh, we've been in the camp that inflation is transitory in rate of change terms. And what I mean by that is that the the year over year rate of the rate of change statistics will be two three hundred basis points lower a year from now. Um, when you sort of look at you know some of the the different components that are actually driving CPI, having already lost a tremendous amount of momentum before they actually start to uh, ramp up against some uh, very difficult base effects, uh, we are also in the persistent camp uh, to borrow uh, Peter's uh, statement as well. Um, and what I mean by that is that there, you're going to have some tr uh, factors that are going to be working against inflation, namely uh, owners' equivalent rent and shelter CPI, which is 75% uh, of that. Uh, that's going to be working against inflation throughout this entire transitory process, and so. It's very likely that we see the stationary mean of inflation uh, transpose itself higher, looking at headline CPI, for instance, in the U.S., by around 150 basis points. That means the oscillations that we're going to be doing on inflation are going to be 150 basis points higher than they have been in recent uh, recent cycles on inflation. So that, that has market impact as it relates to keeping the Fed on this policy path forward um, with respect to uh, tightening. We're obviously likely to get tapering next week. We're likely to get tightening sometime in, in mid to late uh, 2022. That's been our view, and that's going to likely remain our view. It's certainly starting to get priced into the markets. And then lastly, with respect to uh, investor positioning in portfolios and, and actually how to actually make money with this, because that's, that's what we're all here to do, uh, I, I, we do believe this transitory bounce is, it, it's already had a decent amount of market impact, particularly when you think about the recovery in cyclical sectors and style factors off the lows in August, the recovery in bond yields off the lows in August. But something I said uh, you know, maybe a few weeks back, I made the joke that, hey, look, this reflation trade that we're seeing here in you know kind of late the, the you know the later part of the summer into the fall uh, is something that's much more like the Hansen brothers as opposed to the Jackson 5 reflation trade that we got in the early part of the year so uh, that if that if I can land the plane there that that'll be a good spot to end it <laughs> I don't think you can do any better landing the plane on the Jackson uh, 5 and uh, the Hanson Brothers contrast. I think we know which camp I'm in on this one. Um, listen, uh, real quick, I want to hit two other points before we go freestyle here on this show, because I think these are two things that caught my eye at the beginning of the day. Two charts we'd like to take a look at. First, uh, this is durable goods order. Uh, you can see here, uh, it's actually contracted uh, this month. Uh, the actual number was 0.4% negative, so minus 0.4%. This is interesting to me because it's off a prior of an expansion of 1.8%. So it's kind of flipped from uh, positive to negative uh, on this print, not a good sign. Uh, similarly, I wanted to take a look at international trade in goods. This is the advanced print. Uh, this number looks really ugly to me. It's minus 96.3 billion. Let me put that into a little bit of context for you. Last month contraction, this is prior, minus 87.6 billion. Prior revised, minus 88.2 billion. Consensus for this, minus 87.9 billion. Consensus range, minus 90.2 billion to minus 86 billion. 
a lot of numbers there. Let me put this in context to you. It is one of those quadruple threats, right? So the actual comes out below prior, below prior revised, below consensus, and below consensus range. That suggests that what we're seeing here uh, is a material contraction in the international trade in goods based on this advanced number. Let me throw that open to you guys. Any thoughts there on durable goods, uh, on the trade in goods number? Obviously, some two things that are related in terms of the contraction and aggregate demand. Uh, Peter, first, you jump in. What are your thoughts? Well, with the durable goods number, what uh, kept the lid on the headline were aircraft orders uh, decline there. If you actually look at core durable goods, uh, it actually slightly exceeded expectations. But I think most relevant is that on a real basis, because these are nominal numbers, on a real basis, wholesale inflation, or if you just look at PPI, is running well ahead of durable goods orders. So these are actually falling on a real basis. In terms of the trade deficit, yes, that is a record high on an absolute basis, but not just yet as a percent of GDP. But in response to both the shipments component of durable goods that came in a little better, but the trade deficit coming in much worse, the Atlanta Fed's GDP estimate ahead of tomorrow's third quarter report is down to just 0.2%. It was a half a percent Prior to this, it was 6% two months ago. Yeah. Uh, over to, to um, Darius in just one second, two points. First, I'm very grateful for you for bringing up the internal dynamics on that number, uh, Peter. My B unit died, so I'm operating without a Bloomberg terminal here. So I'm very helpful, very thankful for you for providing that. And second, uh, to Darius, in case there was any doubt in anyone's mind, I am definitely Team Jackson 5. Jump in. <laughs> Most people are, my friend. Although the Hanson Brothers had a good hit, man. It was a solid song. Uh, but yes. One song. <laughs> it's a great song, but you know, it is what it is. Um, so let's go back to the trade deficit first, because we can, I think we'll touch on the durable goods. Uh, I'll lead that into that. The, the, the key statistic with respect to the trade deficit, obviously the trade goods, uh, the balance there hitting an all time low. I think that's one more statistic that points to lower inflation rates in the future. And what I mean by that is it likely portends an increase in inventories over the next, over the ensuing months. A lot of the stuff, a lot of the goods are still sitting on ships and still sitting in ports that haven't hit shelves yet. They haven't hit the Amazon screen yet. But they will, and and eventually we're likely to see uh, the pace of price appreciation really start to dissipate broadly in the economy. We've already seen it. Um, we've seen, you know, for example, headline CPI on SR basis has come down from 12% annualized um, in April, May, June time period to you know just a little bit over one. And so we've always seen a lot of that dissipation, and it's likely to continue in our opinion, particularly as you get out into the Q1, Q2 of next year. Um, back to the durable goods report, uh, I would argue that. The durable goods report exactly is actually not the, the, the main event here because I think it was well presaged by the declines in you know consumer intent to purchase durable goods for most of the consumer confidence surveys. Those things have been dropping like a rock for months, so we yeah. should not be particularly um, we shouldn't be surprised that we see durable goods go down. But to me, I think the capex data was actually quite constructive from a growth perspective. You saw uh, core capital goods, new orders, which strip out defense and aircrafts to give you a cleaner read on what's happening from an underlying business investment perspective. That ticked up for the second consecutive month. That's at 10% on a SAR basis. Um, shipments were up uh, 18% on a SAR basis. That's a six-month high. And then lastly, you had unfilled orders for, for core capital goods. Um, they were up uh, to a record on a nominal basis, but the SAR there at 10% is actually down for the third consecutive month. And so that, to me, is the sort of a clean-cut signal that these sort of supply chain imbalances 
that have really created this, you know, very loud crescendo in inflation pressures, both domestically and globally here in kind of late fall, early early Q, or early winter. I do believe that is suggestive that, that we're going to move past that crescendo in, in a matter of months. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. Yeah, Darius, spot on as usual, talking about it being presaged, presaged uh, to these markets. Consensus range minus 3% uh, to minus, uh, I'm sorry, to positive 0.6. So actually uh, closer to the higher end of that range, even though it was a negative print, something that seemed to be uh, very much baked in uh, to this number. I should say, since both of you have mentioned uh, price inflation, let's take a look at a clip uh, that talks to precisely this point. This is a conversation uh, between Brent Johnson and Russell Napier on the Essential Plus and Pro Tiers at Real Vision. Let's take a look at the clip. If Ronald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, and Richard Nixon can get together to, ro- to launch a price-fixing mechanism for the entire American economy, it tells you what can happen if you're absolutely not prepared to use interest rates. So I think the good news for America is the Fed will begin to do something, but it can't do very much, but at least it can do more than China and it can do more than, than Europe. So when I talk about financial repression, people go, get it. Inflation here, interest rates here, let's talk about something else. But this is the ailment, the side effect that begins to permeate through an economy when you're not prepared to use interest rates to control inflation. Well, there you have it. Obviously, part of a longer-form, deep-dive conversation between Brent uh, Johnson and Russell Napier. Uh, But the point stands, he's obviously looking at and thinking about inflation uh, and policy action. So I'll throw back to you, Peter. Give us a sense of what your thoughts are uh, on inflation and where central banks stand right now in their willingness to respond to it in the U.S. and abroad. Well, I think Jay Powell's uh, speech on Friday was pretty clear on how he is viewing it now and how he thinks is best to respond to it in his opinion or how he wants to respond to it. What, what upsets me is that they keep blaming the supply side, like that's the only thing. And it takes two to tango here with this inflation story. We had had extraordinary demand over the past 12 months on the good side. That is a main driver of the inflation we're seeing because that has far exceeded the ability of the supply side to meet up with it. But he keeps blaming just the supply side and saying, well, the Fed can't do anything about the supply side. But the Fed still has pedal to the metal on the demand side. When you have zero interest rates, when you have QE, you're still trying to incentivize people to buy a home or to buy a car, since those are the two most interest rate sensitive parts of the economy. Well, why are they doing that? When you got to buy a home, it's costing 20% more than what it cost last year. And they're trying to push you to buy a car when they're none on a lot. And if you want to buy a used car, you're going to pay up 40% year of year. But what he said was that they want they don't want to... Now, keep in mind, QE and rates are going to be two separate things here. So tapering QE will do nothing to impact the demand side of the economy. Therefore, it will do nothing to slow down the pace of inflation. The only way that it will is if it tanks the stock market and then that crushes demand. So therefore, it's really just 
changing interest rates that directly influences the demand side. So Powell basically said, I have my fingers crossed. I hope the supply side will adjust itself and these inflation numbers will mid, will slow down. Therefore, I can do tapering at the path I choose, and that's over, call it seven months, 15 billion a month, and then we'll get around to raising interest rates then. Uh, but then that tells you seven months down the road, rates are still gonna be at zero. And through this taper, which I do believe is tightening, but their balance sheet's gonna go from eight and a half trillion to north of nine. So that's the Fed's idea of dealing with inflation. Let's grow our balance sheet by another 500 billion plus and keep rates at zero. That's how they plan on dealing with inflation right now. Yeah, Peter, so many important points there. By the way, for people who are relatively new to the macro space, let me give a little bit of context on what Peter's talking about. Uh, so the taper is effectively reducing the rate at which the balance sheet is expanding. Uh, the balance sheet continues to expand during the taper. Uh, and more to the point, it continues to be, well, I'm looking right now, the Fed Fred series WALCL. It's $8.5 trillion on the Fed balance sheet. In addition to that, as we unpack the alphabet soup of unconventional monetary policy, you also have interest rates at the zero, the zero bound uh, here. Uh, so this zero interest rate policy continues uh, as the uh, balance sheet gets, uh, as the uh, rate of expansion of the balance sheet gets reduced. I know this is a lot of complicated stuff, but this is really about all of the policy actions that were taken uh, in the wake of the 2008 global financial crisis uh, and then reasserted here uh, during the COVID crisis that we are, are just now beginning to emerge from. So with that as prologue, uh, Darius, jump in. So much there to talk about. Uh, obviously, the monetary policy stance, inflation, uh, and where you think we are with regard to all of it. Yeah, so I think you have to evaluate the Fed's monetary policy stance in the context of their objectives. I mean, the reality is obviously no one likes inflation, so we, we prefer them to be a little bit tighter, you know, particularly those of us that eat food and drive cars. But the reality is that you know, whether or not we like it or not is not really the question. The question is, are they, is the stance appropriate? And I would argue that actually is pretty appropriate at the current juncture relative to their, their goals and their objectives. Uh, obviously, they sort of advanced last year this concept of average inflation targeting, which in my opinion was really just a scarecrow, just to give maximum inclusive employment an opportunity to shine. And the reality is they're, they're not quite at meeting that goal. If you look at you know, two important statistics on that front, you have the employment to population ratio, that's down at 58.7%. Uh, that's still down 240 basis points from where it was uh, you know, prior to the pandemic. And then the employment or sort of the labor force participation rate uh, for prime working age individuals, that's at 81.6%. And that's down 140 basis points from where it peaked in January of last year. So there's still some hate bell, um, particularly with respect to you know the level of employment, which obviously the Fed tends to care about levels a lot more than they care about um, you know the actual rate of change of the data in the direction of travel, but the, mm -hmm. you know so in that in that context, you know you can make the case that QE is still appropriate, uh, emergency policy rate policy rate policy is still appropriate because those are some pretty shocking statistics. Now that's probably the only labor market data I can tell you that is actually um, uh, easy or loose. Uh, the rest of the labor market is pretty pretty tight. You know if you look at something like um, the jokes data that has the uh, quits ratio at 3.3%, that's an all-time high. Um, that's going to continue to drag up wage pressures on a medium, uh, medium basis and also the employment cost index. So, you know, a lot of consumers and businesses are feeling the pinch from inflation, but I tend to sympathize with the Fed with respect to, you know, 
these the supply chain dynamics, the, the supply imbalance, the supply and demand imbalances will likely be there regardless of the Fed was doing uh, QE and regardless of the policy rate was zero percent or one percent. I think you know you'd have you know the, the the way in which monetary policy impacts the economy happens on a long and severe lag. And by the time that we see that lag really start to filter through into you know growth in economic activity and consumers and corporations' ability to finance themselves, we may very well be past all the supply uh, chain disruptions that, that we're kind of dealing with in COVID. So I, I tend to say with Powell on this one. Yeah, I have no doubt that sometime around 2045, when we get Fed Chair Darius Dale, we'll see more focus on the second derivative. <laughs> My first act of Fed Chair will be to abolish the Fed. <laughs> You're going to get some votes on one side of the aisle for that, I'm sure. Hey, listen, I wanted to jump in here because we've got some really great questions coming in uh, from the exchange, from the Real Vision site, and from YouTube. Uh, the first one comes to us from Michael Marsh, Michael Marsh from the exchange. Uh, and his question is a short one, three words, is gold dead? Jump in. Who wants to take that? No, I'll take it. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> since good. I, I, I've suffered through it this year being long, uh, but after a, a good 2020. So something that's been around for 5,000 years um, is, 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 is not dead. Um, I think that's nonsense to, to even think that. And I know that there's this Bitcoin or gold and one's replacing the other. And, and, and what I like to say to that is, well, first thing, something that's 13 years old is not replacing something that's 5,000 years old. And it's okay to be bullish on both because the bull case for Bitcoin is very similar to the bull case for gold and that it's an, an anti-central bank mentality. It's all this currency debasement. It's something that is very limited in supply and they can coexist and they can complement each other. And Bitcoin will have its place and gold will have its place and they can both go up. And when you look at FANG stocks, it wasn't like, oh, should I buy Facebook or Google? Should I buy you know, Amazon or Microsoft? No, you bought it all. You bought all these tech stocks. It wasn't one or the other. It wasn't one was going to steal the thunder from, from the other. So I, I think they can very well coexist. And when you're around for 5,000 years, that tells you that you've been through a lot. You've been through a, plenty of economic cycles and a lot of ups and downs and world wars and the Weimar Republic and the current Fed and this and that. And it tells you that something that's been through so much and still stands the test of time, I think, is very relevant. And, and one last point to this question of whether it's dead. So there was a story on Bloomberg last week that people in Venezuela are scraping flakes off gold nuggets and using those gold flakes to go buy food, get a haircut, and pay for daily expenses. Uh. So... And, and they don't have access to the internet, so they can't use Bitcoin. So that tells you in the 21st century, people are still using physical gold to pay for things. Therefore, gold is far from dead. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I tend to agree with you, although I, I, I agree with you in the statement that gold is, is far from dead. But I don't know that it's appropriate to assume that the two can't coexist in a way that is very deleterious for gold until the asset allocation rebalance takes place. Uh, this we know, you know, I'm not sure what the market cap for gold is, but I think, you know, for crypto, it's somewhere around a little bit over $2 trillion. And the reality is a lot of investor money 
has to rebalance itself now that there is, I would argue, is a very attractive investment vehicle for just as you said, a lot of the different sort of you know more narrative-based drivers of, of Bitcoin and, and gold price appreciation. You know, you have to take some 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 asset allocation from gold and apply it to Bitcoin. And I think that's partially part of the problem with gold here in this particular window. I mean, I liken it to you know, obviously they can very much coexist. They they currently do, but I liken it to sort of a, a asset class substitution effect if you think about being long mega cap growth companies over the last decade relative to Russell value companies. You know, they both exist, but that doesn't necessarily mean there has not been a massive rebalancing in the in the favor of mega cap growth type names um, as interest rates obviously have declined and, and investor and they've obviously grown their moats pretty pretty tremendously. And so I do believe that's sort of the story with gold is that Bitcoin is an emergent asset class that is demanding incremental flows, and those incremental flows are coming from you know people my age, people younger than me, who don't necessarily believe in gold to the same degree that they believe in the digital economy. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. I'll throw in one footnote here, an asterisk on the total market capitalization of the crypto space. As with everything else in the space, it's highly contentious. I'm looking at CoinGecko right now. It looks like 2.6 trillion, or just under 2.6 trillion, is the stated uh, total network value for all of those coins. But that's a very contentious point, particularly (laughs) among Bitcoiners who say, yeah, but a lot of that value on the coins uh, at the bottom of the list. I think there's some uh, 10,000 now is not real. So, uh, yeah. as with everything else, uh, very much subject to debate. By the way, I just wanted to move on here. We've got some great questions coming in, and they're great questions for you guys. It's like our viewers really know exactly what to ask you. Um, but I want to start out with this hand grenade that uh, Neko the Freako from the Real Vision site is lobbing over the fence. Uh, and he says, I am dying to hear what you guys have to say about unrealized capital gains taxes. <laughs> uh, well, what, what the, pro- the, the problem is, is that it was the, the, the only way to daily calculate an unrealized capital gain is holding those public securities where you can literally mark to market every day. Uh, it basically would exempt all the money that's in private markets, whether it's in private equity, private investments, a piece of art on your wall. It is true insanity to classify an unrealized gain in a public security as income. It, it's, it's truly insane. And, but it, it's, we know that there's this money grab going on and they're trying to be creative, but I, I, I think this one, uh, has literally jumped the shark. Yeah. Well, th- thank God we don't have to deal with it. Uh, Democrat, I think Dick Neal came out today and said they they're trying to scrapping that um, from the negotiations with respect to the uh, Biden agenda that's being currently negotiated. The budget, the resolution that's definitely coming down from three and a half trillion, probably somewhere around one point five trillion. I think Joe Manchin's pretty dug in on that. If we get it, I mean, who knows what uh, Senator Sinema actually wants and, and needs from this uh, this process? But we shall see. By the way, there's also one step step further. 
just imagine what happens in the next bear market when all these billionaires have unrealized losses and the Treasury is now giving these guys basically back their money. I mean, it. it <laughs> I'm guessing somebody smart in the room probably brought that up. <laughs> and they're like, oh, no, we can't do that. <laughs> yeah, I was joking around on Twitter when uh, it's going to get to a point. Uh, there are certain people in public life who, you know, your 10-year-old daughter comes home from school inspired by science and tells you that she wants to be a doctor. Are we going to find a way to tax her dreams? I mean, it's just like it seems like such a surreal and bizarre. By the way, there was talk about potentially adopting this at the state level in New York. Did you guys see any of those policy papers? Oh, dear God. Luckily, no, because it just would have upset me. <laughs> it, it would be the uh, it would become the uh, Florida Full Employment Act of 2022. <laughs> I mean, we will uh, have a negative unemployment rate. <laughs> a great tourism commercial. <laughs> um, so let me go. Keep going through. There's lots happening here in the questions. Uh, Adam P from the Real Vision site, uh, the YC. He's talking about the yield curve. The YC looks heavy at the long end. We may be in reflation, but is the market telling us short duration cyclicals are not the way to play it? See, these are great questions for you guys. Fantastic question. We discussed that earlier today in our, our macro bundle Q and A. Yeah, I, I do believe that is the case. I mean, the, the smart. So, if you're talking about a Jacks or a Hanson Brothers type inflation trade, you don't have the scope to price in longer term earnings trajectories for cyclical sectors and style factors. So, what that means is that you're unlikely. It's very unlikely that you know bottom up mac, mac, or micro oriented investors are going to go out there and and really overweight cyclicals to the extent that they did. You know, early part of this year leading up to the high of the inflation trade in early June. And so what that means is it, like, so it implies that you're likely to see a much more sort of balanced sector and style factor uh, pivots within the market. Um, you're, it's a very unlikely you're going to see a runaway in something like high beta relative to low beta or small caps relative to mega caps or value relative to growth. In fact, those, those latitude um, uh, ratios actually peaked a couple of weeks ago and actually have traded down alongside the compression in the yield curve, which, oh, by the way, something I've been talking about for three weeks now. Look, the five-year, 30-year curve is south of 80 basis points or went south of 80 basis points today. That's the lowest we've seen since uh, since last March. And so clearly the market is saying, hey, we're right on the Fed having to, to pull forward tightening into 2022. That's going to have a deleterious impact on growth, not just in 2022 and 2023, but really the, for the terminal um, where, the, where the cycle actually winds up, you know, longer term. And ultimately, that means you just can't run away with the same kind of hope and Pollyannish expectations about cyclicals that you did prior to the June FOMC event, which, again, I believe was one of the more material catalysts from a macro perspective this year, because it was the first time since really Jackson Hole of 2020 that the Fed said anything about not necessarily adopting an MMT-style framework. Yeah, because I know we're running out of time here, but there are two great questions. I was wondering if we do a quick speed round on these, just a quick yes or no answer with maybe one sentence. The first one uh, comes to us from Mark Jackson, and Mark's question is, hi, guys, uh, if it's a really long, cold winter, does this change anything in terms of your outlook thoughts? Peter, first to you. Well, that would likely mean uh, higher energy prices and higher natural gas prices if it is extremely cold. Uh, but that would just continue uh, with this persistent inflation theme. Now, of course, that's a very narrow look at inflation since it's just energy prices. I'm sorry, that was more than one sentence. But uh, um, I, I think inflation is going to be persistent well into 2022. And whether it's cold or warm, I don't necessarily think that's going to change that. Darius, what do you think? Can you do it in three sentences or less? 
<laughs> sure, absolutely. No, it won't change anything with respect to our outlook. Uh, we're adequately positioned for uh, energy prices to continue rising. Um, and they ultimately realize that the ultimate risk to the, the economy is policy tightening so, or brought on by cost push inflation. So we have plenty of those hedges in our 42 macro portfolio construction. All right, I've got one more for you from Don Lassis from YouTube. This is like an ultimate question that uh, it, 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 he asks for a yes, no answer, but I know we're not getting one out of you. The question is, gentlemen, is the yield curve heading toward inversion? Not anytime soon. Yeah, I'll, I'll say no to that. I'll, if you look at the yield curve since the Fed initiated QE1, and we learned that when QE is on, the yield curve steepens. When QE is off or turning off, the yield curve flattens. And in fact, it was the mid-June FOMC meeting when this yield curve flattening really just started because the Fed said that they're talking about tapering. So I think we're just seeing that classic flattening as the Fed begins to tighten. As Darius said, the market's thinking about, okay, let's take this steps further, and that this Fed tightening, the global central bank tightening, will eventually slow growth, therefore you flatten the curve. But I do think that we're a long way from any inversion because I think we're a long way off from some of these central banks from actually raising short-term interest rates. Yeah, if I can add Gentlemen, one quick thing to that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry, if I can one quick end on a positive note. The reason that bond yields go up during QE and bond yields go down when they're doing tapering or not QE is because the Fed is comically pro-cyclical with its its policy. Mm-hmm. You know, they wait until seeing data that says, "Okay, growth's good again. Let me start tightening, tightening, and, and tapering." But the reality is, the the Fed reacts to levels of growth and levels of inflation. The market reacts to the rate of change of growth and inflation. And typically, what happens when the Fed is going from QE to QT or something um, in between is we're at the peak of the sine curve for growth, inflation, and or both. And that's typically this pattern. That's precisely what we observed this year. They came out in June and said, hey, we got to start talking about ta- tapering and tightening at the literal peak of the sine curves for growth and inflation. They're so good at it. Yeah. Talking of comedy, we've got a comically high quality problem here, gentlemen, which is way too much great content, not nearly enough time. Darius, Peter, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Great to do this. Thanks so much. And thanks again for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. We'll see you tomorrow when Maggie Lake sits down with Harry Melandri. And don't forget to check out the first episode of our new crypto show, Real Vision, The Defiant, covering the last week in crypto news. It airs at 6 p.m. Eastern time today on the crypto tier. In the meantime, go check out all of Real Vision's latest videos. Thanks for watching, everybody. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.